This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Can people really change? The new way of life becomes a habit, and that's when you've made the change. You need to be who you are on purpose. Well, hey, everybody, it's Dr. Phil again, and you're on Phil in the Blanks. I have a really special guest today, and this is kind of a self-indulgent podcast for me because I really had an interest in talking to my guest, Lori Gottlieb, and I'll tell you why as we go along. But this is really fascinating to me, so I hope it is to you. Now, Lori is a psychotherapist. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which has sold over a million copies. And guys, I don't know what you understand about best-selling books, but selling a million copies of a book is a big, big deal. Getting on the bestseller list doesn't take selling a million books, and most don't. So this is a huge deal. And in addition to her clinical practice, she's co-host of the popular Dear Therapist podcast, which is produced by my good friend Katie Couric. She also writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column. She's really a sought-after expert in the media. You've seen her on the Today Show, GMA, CBS This Morning, CNN, NPR's Fresh Air. She did a TED Talk, which was one of the 10 most watched of the year. I've watched it, and very creative, very informative, really challenged the audience to think about the story they tell themselves about their own life. She's also the creator of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone Workbook, which is a toolkit for, and get this, editing your story and changing your life. And we're going to talk about what that means. So welcome, Lori. How are you doing? Great. Great to be here. Well, I'm tickled to death to talk to you, and you are busy. Uh, Is there anything you're not doing right now? I didn't talk about the fact that you work on television shows and advise people and actually write for some shows. You kind of do everything, right? You know, I, I love what I do. So I think when we love what we do, it doesn't feel like work. Well, that's true. If your vocation and avocation can be one in the same thing, then we're very blessed. I feel the same way. It's interesting how much our paths kind of parallel each other because a lot of the things that you do I do as well, including working on scripted television shows and that sort of thing. And it's interesting how getting trained in psychology and being in practice and all can go down so many different paths and impact so many people where the people that we're actually working with one-on-one become teaching tools for millions of people that might be reading about it or watching it. But that does change the way that you interact with that person, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think that that's what I'm trying to do is exactly what you said, which is to really bring emotional health and well-being to everybody, to make it accessible for everybody. And so I think when we're working one-on-one in the room with somebody, um, you know, we have a, a great impact, but we also can bring that to people who maybe aren't going to go to therapy, but really want help with their relationships with their parents, their children, their, you know, figuring out the relationships to themselves. And I think that that's so important that everybody has access to that. You're right. So many people won't necessarily reach out and get into a therapeutic relationship, but if they follow what work you're doing or I'm doing with somebody else. And the facts of the story may not be exactly the same, but if we put constructs at play when we're working with that person that can be generalized to other people and they can say, well, what Lori's saying to this person 
does generalize, and I can use that in my own life. It at least causes me to ask questions. Do I need to ask myself the same questions she's causing this person to ask themselves? Then that, to me, is the real self-help, where you can cause people to start questioning themselves and examining what I think is really important in overcoming their confirmation bias, where all they look at is that tunnel vision that's become the story in their life. You talk about that story people tell themselves, that narrative that they embrace a lot. Why is that so important? I think it's important because the fact is that we're all unreliable narrators of our own lives. And what I mean by that is that we think that our version of a story is the only version of the story and the absolute accurate version of the story. And you know, you, you've seen this too, when you see couples, for example, um, there are two versions of a story, both of which are accurate from each person's perspective. And when you broaden the story and you allow other perspectives in, so much possibility can happen. And I think the other place that you see this unreliable narrator is I talk in, in maybe you should talk to someone about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is we tell our friends our story, like, look what my husband did, look what my mother did, look what my boss did, right? And your friend will say, yeah, they were wrong, you were right, and we just back them up because we think we're supporting them. I think what you get in therapy is you get wise compassion, which is we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. Something about how you respond, something about your role, something about what you are doing in this dance with this other person as well. And it's kind of like, you know, with idiot compassion, if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that to our friends. We need someone to say that to us. Yeah, it's really interesting, but I really believe that people know the truth when they hear it. I did a lot of work in behavioral medicine, and people would invariably get suspect news on a lab report or an x-ray or something on a Friday afternoon and then have to wait two or three days before they got some clarity from their doctor. And friends and family would be telling them all week, oh, it's going to be fine. You're just, oh, you're fine. That never comforted anyone. And if someone gave them really truthful feedback that said, hey, listen, let's not jump to conclusions. Let's think about what this really means. If it's A, then we do B. If it's B, then we do C. If it's C, then we do D. Instead of just, oh, it's going to be fine. People really responded to somebody that had the courage to tell them the truth. That's what comforts people. Right. And I think what happens is the person that you're coming to for comfort feels discomfort with your feelings. So they are really trying to comfort themselves and they're not really trying to help you. They don't realize that in the moment. It's kind of like what parents do with their kids. Like if your kid comes to you and says, I'm really sad about this. What do we tend to do? Oh, don't be sad about that. Hey, let's go get some ice cream instead of, oh yeah, I can see why you're sad about that. Or tell me more about that. I think that the three words that are so important for us to use when someone brings us a difficult feeling is tell me more. Because that's what's going to comfort the person. Let there be space for anxiety, for sadness, for loss, for grief, for whatever it is. Let there be space for that. That is what's comforting. Well, I believe in the principle of reciprocity. And I think you get what you give. You pass somebody in the mall, how you doing? Fine, you fine. You get what you give. And if you do that, if you say, tell me more about that, instead of give them the Heisman and stay shallow, they will open up. They will share with you. They will give you something that you can respond to in a more genuine fashion. To me, that's real connection. That's what's so important. I think it starts with, as you said, giving them space and taking time to make eye contact shut everything else out, and engage that person one-on-one in a meaningful fashion. And we don't do that enough now. Coming out of this quarantine, I think we're out of practice even more and need to do it purposefully 
and not just let it happen when it happens, but be mindful of it and say, we really need to listen and engage other people more. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people feel like when someone comes to you with something that you need to fix it. And most people are not asking you to fix it. They're asking to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. That's really what you can offer them. I was teasing at the top of this that this was kind of a self-indulgent interview for me because I, surprisingly enough, I don't get to talk to colleagues that much just about the idea of practice and the ideas that people take into interactions with other people. And I love to do that because when I do interact with them, it's usually about a case. I have an advisory board here with the top minds in psychology and psychiatry and sociology and medicine. And when I talk to my guys, it's usually, okay, I've got a really complex case here. What's your input on this or that? And to get to talk about philosophy and approach is really intriguing to me. I love the symbol system you use to describe the way you talk to people and the way they narrate their story. You make a really great point where you say the story people come to you with in the beginning is typically not the story it winds up being about and not the story that you end with at the other end. And of course, that's the therapeutic process, but you describe it in a way people can understand. They come to you with a story and they're not reliable narrators. How do you go about getting them to reevaluate their story and change that narrative? I think you have to ask the right questions. And I think that people don't know what questions to ask themselves because they're very married to their story. And they feel like um, they're very stuck. And the reason they're stuck is because there's something faulty in their narrative. And so my job sitting with somebody is to help them ask themselves some questions that they haven't been able to do. I think that a lot of times we don't ask those questions because of shame. I think that we feel like if I face the truth of something about myself that maybe I'm not proud of, um, I'm, I'm a bad person. And we really want to distinguish between, you know, what it means to do something, which is different from who you are as a person. So a lot of times people don't tell you the whole story. They minimize certain things. They spend a lot of time talking about what other people have done. And we really just want to humanize the fact that we are all imperfect people, um, that we grow and change because of these imperfections, and that really being honest with ourselves and with the people in our lives is going to free us from whatever is ailing us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and your book, I want to really encourage people to read this book. And I think when you do read, maybe you should talk to someone, you're going to find that this isn't really a book that you just read and say, wow, that was really enlightening. I think this is something that's going to be more of a manual because I think it's going to be something that you read and absorb, and then you're going to go back to, and there are going to be parts of it that you re-examine, you look at again. There are going to be parts that you go back over with your kids that you use at different times in your life. It's more than just something you read. I think it becomes a guidebook 
to how you navigate different crises in your life and different phases in your life. I think that's why the book has such legs. And I think the workbook, it's more than just a companion piece. It takes it even further and further. So I highly, highly recommend it. But in this, you talk about that there's a common theme to their stories that include an element of emptiness and disconnection. No matter how many people are in their lives, whether it's work, family, extended family, or whatever, that a lot of these narratives that people have, they don't feel connected. They do feel a sense of emptiness. And I get a sense from a lot of the people that I talk to of them putting themselves in a victim role in that regard as well. Well, I think this lack of connection is a big theme, especially now. And, you know, I, I should just give this some context to say that in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I follow the stories of four seemingly very different people that I see in therapy. But there's a fifth patient in the book, and that is me, as I go through therapy with my own therapist. And I did that because I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And I didn't want to be the expert up on high because I truly believe, especially as all these years as a therapist, I've seen that we are all more the same than we are different. And so I think that when, when people are struggling with something, whatever their issue is, there are real issues that they're struggling with, very kind of discrete issues. But underneath it is often this sense of not enough connection. How are their lives peopled? And are those relationships nourishing them? So they might have a lot of people in their lives, but they might not be nourishing because they're operating on a superficial level or they're having a lot of difficulty with getting along or they aren't opening up, they're not being vulnerable. So there are a lot of reasons that we feel disconnected. And I think part of it has to do with, we feel like whatever we're going through is that we're alone in it. And we don't talk about our emotional health as much as we need to, in the sense that if something happens to you physically, like let's say that you, you, know, you fall down and you, you, you know, break your arm or something, Um, We're going to go to the doctor for that. And we're not going to compare it to something and say, well, it's not like I have whatever it is, you know, stage four cancer or whatever, something that you think is more severe than that. With our emotional health, we say, yeah, I don't know. I'm feeling like disconnected or I'm feeling kind of sad or I, I just something's off. But, you know, I have a roof over my head and food on the table, so it's okay. I'm not going to get help for that. We don't have this hierarchy of pain with our physical health. We, we get help, but with our emotional health, we do. So if you're having chest pain, you're probably gonna go see a cardiologist before you have a heart attack. If you're having emotional pain, the people who come to my office are usually having an emotional heart attack. They didn't come when they were just having the equivalent of the chest pain. And now, first of all, it's harder to treat because now you're like, it's really gotten bad. But secondly, you suffered unnecessarily for a long time when you didn't need to. So I think part of the disconnection is that we don't realize how important it is to tend to our emotional health, not when it gets really bad, but to make that a part of our lives, to make that a priority. Yeah, and I think we have to own that because one of the things that I think we're really deficient in society-wise is we don't do anything in the educational system to teach kids to recognize red flags in their mental health. We don't teach them what you're feeling might be anxiety or depression or some other mental health anomaly. We don't teach them what that is. We don't teach them how to recognize it. We don't teach them what the resources are. We don't teach them how to avoid the stigmas associated with that. And there's a counselor in every school, but They just are pretty passive. They sit there and wait for somebody to come knock on their door. They're not proactive in most cases. And there is a stigma. If you're seen going into the counselor's office, you're like, well, you know, what's wrong with this person? And they're kind of ashamed of it. I think we have to do a better job of saying, look, this is something that you need to learn about and recognize. It's been a long time since I've been in private practice, and I so admire those people that do it. 
when I was in private practice, one of my most eye-opening experiences was that I had people that never knew they were depressed until they weren't. I had people that came in and they didn't come in because they were depressed. They came in because of a marriage or their kid was on drugs or something was going on. And they never knew that they had depression until it lifted and they began to say, oh, wow, the sky is blue. There are people around that care about me and that I care about. And I have energy for my job and my family. And all of a sudden, they said, what's going on? They had lived years being depressed and never knew it and said, Doc, what's happened here? What, what's going on? How many people are living with depression and don't even know it because they don't see the red flags and have not labeled it? Yeah, I'm just nodding because that's exactly what I see in my practice is so many times people do not know how to identify what's going on with them. And if they've been living with depression for most of their lives, they just think that's life. That's normal. They don't know that there's something different. They think, oh, yeah, the problem is that I keep arguing with my husband. They don't know I'm also depressed. And so, you know, and, and anxiety, sometimes people do not know that they have severe anxiety that is really getting in the way of their functioning in, in a way that they finally see when the anxiety is dealt with. Um, I think when you talk about that kid going into the counselor's office at school, we see that as a sign of weakness, but really it's a sign of strength. That kid is saying, I want to get help for this. So whenever somebody admits that they need help, that it takes so much courage, so much bravery. And I wish that in our culture, and I think it's changing, but it has so much farther to go, that we could see that when somebody wants to do something for their emotional health, that that person is extremely strong. They're not weak, they're strong. Exactly. Just admitting it to themselves and not worrying about people judging. I saw the other end of the continuum too, I'm a strong believer that it's not what happens in our life that upsets us. It's violation of our expectancies of what's happening in life. If you get married and you think, okay, my spouse is going to meet me every day at 530 at the door naked with a martini, then you get married and that doesn't happen. What happens is you're having to share time, space, division of labor, money, one of you gets the flu, you're mopping up, vomit, all of these things that actually are just normal. That's just part of it. But if you had an unrealistic expectation and that happens, then you go, oh my God, this is horrible. We've had a fight. We must not be in love. Then they're all upset. But if you have a couple that expected, hey, we're going to merge two lives into one. We're going to have to share time and space and money. We're going to have friction merging our lives. That's just part of it. And then it happens. They go, oh, yeah, well, that's pretty much what I expected. And so I roll right through it. I think it's that it's not what happens. It's if you have an unrealistic expectation and it gets violated, then people start panicking and having anxiety. And again, we don't teach people what to expect. We don't tell them what's natural or normal. If we did that, I think we would have much better across-the-board mental health if we would just spend some time doing that. But I don't know why we don't. Yeah, exactly. And I think where we learn that is we learn that from media. We learn that from movies, which, of course, are not realistic. We learn that from social media, where people are, of course, not posting about the fight that they had with their husband the day before. That's not what they're putting on Instagram. So, you know, I think then we start to feel very alone, like, wow, something must be wrong with, with my marriage or something must be wrong with my kid if this is what's happening. And people just don't know and they don't talk about it. So they don't find out. I love the way you describe this, and it's why people are resistant to change, why they will stick with what they've got instead of reaching for something more, something better, something different. Why do you think we are so married to what we have instead of what we might really want or need? I see this so much in my practice and you can see it. There's a 
a person in my book that I write about um, who's, you know, keeps dating people who are not meeting her needs and who are not people that she, the kind of person she wants to be with. And she keeps kind of repeating something from her childhood, but is unaware that that's what she's doing with, with how she was treated when she was younger. And, and she knows she needs to change, but so often we don't make change because we, when, whatever the change is, is going to involve loss of the familiar. Even if the familiar is miserable, at least it's the devil, you know, And so often we are afraid of uncertainty. Humans don't do well with uncertainty. And so with change comes loss. You lose lose what's familiar to you. You lose what feels like home to you, even if home is not a positive experience for you. And you have to go do something different. And that can scare a lot of people. The other thing about change is people think, like when you think about New Year's resolutions, people think, oh, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat healthier, whatever their New Year's resolution is, um, or I'm going to switch jobs. Um, I'm going to get out of this bad relationship. And the reason that New Year's resolutions often fail is because there are so many steps to change that people don't realize. There are actually many steps. And it starts with pre-contemplation, where you don't even know you're thinking about making the change. Then there's contemplation, where you're thinking about it, but you're not ready to do it. Then there's preparation, where you're, you're kind of preparing, you're getting ready, you're kind of logistically getting ready to do it. And then there's action, where you're making the change. And then there's the last step, which is the most important. People think that once you take action and you make the change, that you're done. No, now you've just begun. The real important step in change is maintenance, which is how do you maintain the change? And that doesn't mean that you don't slip back. It doesn't mean that, oh, you know, you went off your your eating plan or you called that person at three in the morning that you said you vowed you would never call. It means that when you slip back, you get right back on the program the next day. And you have to know, just like you were talking about expectations that in marriage, sometimes people will fight. When you're in maintenance, sometimes you will slip back. But the more that you can be compassionate with yourself and not beat yourself up and say, you know what, I slipped back, but I'm gonna gonna go back tomorrow and I'm human and that's what happened, the less you're gonna slip back until the new way of life becomes a habit and it becomes comfortable, and it no longer feels scary and unfamiliar, and that's when you've made the change. I love the way you describe that. You know, Lori talks about that, and she's got four, well, actually five, counting herself in her work with her therapist, Wendell. The book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, but I love the way you describe that because I think we get in these comfort zones that aren't comfortable at all. That's such a misnomer to say it's a comfort zone. I think people trick themselves because it's like, okay, I'm in this comfort zone, and if I get out of the comfort zone, I could be hurt. I could fail. I could be rejected. I could put something on the line and lose. I could be hurt. But if I stay in this comfort zone, I'm guaranteed to be hurt. This for sure is going to create pain for me because I'm not going to get what I want. So they don't realize the metric is if I stay here, 100% I'm going to get hurt. If I get out of this comfort zone, maybe I get hurt, maybe I don't. It's like if you really think about it, you're much better off to venture out and bet on yourself. But, you know, I've done some surveys and asked people what it is that scares them the most about change. And you're identification of the maintenance part, that was the biggest risk. That was the scariest part to the people that I surveyed. And I'm talking about thousands of people. And what they said was not what if I fail, but what if I succeed? What if I get out and succeed? Okay, now I got to keep it up. Let's say you make $50,000 a year. Well, At $50,000 a year, you have friends that make $50,000 a year. You live in neighborhoods where people make $50,000. You drive cars, live in houses. You do things hobby-wise. And then all of a sudden, you, say, stretch out and you get a higher level of success. And this could be a lot more than money. There's a thousand different ways you get out of your comfort zone. I'm just quantifying it this way because it's easy. All of a sudden, you double your income. Well, now you're hanging out with different people. Maybe you're going to join the country club. Maybe you're going to get a new car, go to a different neighborhood. 
But now you're expected to keep that up, and that's pressure. What if you don't do it? Their fear is not that they're going to reach out of their comfort zone and fail, but that they're going to succeed and then have to keep it up over and over again. That's what scared people. I was surprised about that. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, this happens too when sometimes when you're in a situation like when uh, there's somebody in the book that I write about who, you know, needs to do something about her alcohol addiction. And she she's kind of somebody that you wouldn't really you can't really see that she has it, but she knows she does. And she's kind of like, no, I'm just social. And she's not. It, it really is a problem in her life. And so when she does stop drinking, her friends try to sort of drag her back like, oh, you're no fun anymore. Oh, come out to the bar with us, even though they know that she is working on not drinking. Because then if they see someone else change, they have to look at themselves and say, oh, no, maybe I'm doing something where I might need to look at myself in a way that I don't want to and I might need to change. Another reason that people have trouble changing is because of cherophobia. Cherophobia means fear of joy. So sometimes people say, oh yeah, my life might be better, but they're afraid of that. They're afraid of joy because they don't trust it because maybe when they were younger, anytime they felt safe, Anytime they felt like, okay, I can breathe now, it's going to be okay now, the other shoe would drop. Yeah. And so they don't want to be in that position. They'd rather just things be bad or kind of, you know, not, not the way they want it yeah. because at least they know what it is. But if I let myself feel joy, if I let myself feel safe, if I let my guard down, uh-oh, the other shoe is going to drop. And that will be more devastating to me than just living in my kind of misery that I'm already living in. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Isn't that a terrible way to go through life? And the sad thing about it is, you can go through your whole life that way, and then you get to the end of your life and say, that horrible other shoe never dropped. And I spent my whole life denying this unbridled joy, and nothing catastrophic ever happened. I just kept myself held back all of that time. People ask me, can people really change? The leopard changing their spot, blah, 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 blah. Can people really change? And you believe that people have an incredible ability to make changes to their personality, to their life, to their patterns. Talk about that for me. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that with everybody in the book and, and those were not unusual cases. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it's interesting because when I went to therapy and I write about this in the book too, my therapist said to me at one point, he said, you know, you remind me of this cartoon and it's of a prisoner who's shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, the bars are open. You can just walk around the bars. So why don't we do that? Why don't we change? And the reason is that if we walk around those bars, we're free. But freedom requires, it comes with responsibility. If we walk around those bars, we aren't the victim anymore. We aren't that person shaking the bars saying, oh, I'm stuck, I'm trapped. Now we are responsible for our choices. We are responsible for our lives. And sometimes it feels a little more comfortable to be able to say, oh, somebody else is responsible for the reason that I'm unhappy, as opposed to now, whatever I do, I'm responsible for. And so I think that that's part of why I really believe people can change, because I think that once they see that they are shaking those bars, but that it's open on the sides, then they have a choice. Oh, I can change. 
what is keeping me from walking around those bars? And the work of therapy is helping to people to get to the bottom of that. Why won't you walk around those bars? What are you afraid of? How can we support you in doing that? Yeah, I always tell people I got good news and bad news for you. <laughs> and uh, the good news is the only person you control is you. The bad news is the only person you need to control is you. Come on, you don't have to change anybody else. It's up to you. I hate to see people spending all of their time setting goals or focusing on things they can't change. I always tell people, look, if you're going to set a goal, make sure it is something that's attainable, that you control, that it's quantifiable so you can measure whether you're making progress or not. Don't set a goal that we're going to have a white Christmas. Unless you figure it a way to control the weather, that's not a goal. That's a dream. That's a hope. That's a wish. We're going to have a white Christmas. You can decide, I'm going to have a happy time at Christmas. I'm going to control the things in my domain. I'm going to set those up the way I want to do it. But you're not going to control your spouse. You can inspire change, but you can't create it in others, only in yourself. It just seems to me if we could get people to focus on themselves and then just maybe they can focus on inspiring others to change, they would feel so much more powerful and so much less a product of their environment, so much less having to wait for somebody else to do something that they don't have control over. It's so hard to get people to understand for some reason. Well, it is. And that's why when I see couples in therapy, the first thing that I ask them to do before they even come in, I say, I want you to do some homework before you come in for the first session. I want you to write down what you can do, not what your partner can do, but what you can do. What is your goal in this therapy of what you can do to make this relationship better? Because if you don't set that up from the very beginning, the first thing that happens is they come and they sit down and they tell you everything their partner is doing wrong. And so my orientation is you work on you in this relationship and that will influence your partner to do things different because it will improve the relationship overall. And when the climate, when the kind of the air between you is better because you're doing something different, both people are gonna be motivated to make changes. And if that doesn't happen with the other person, that also gives you information. But at least you know that you're doing everything you can do to improve the relationship. There are two things I focus on a lot, unfinished emotional business and minimal effective response. and. You talk about examples of unfinished business that gets carried in as baggage into relationships. Describe for people what you mean by this unfinished business that people drag into relationships. Yeah. So a good example is that woman I was talking about from the book, um, Charlotte, who keeps dating these men who are unreliable, who are not willing to commit, who, um, you know, always leave her kind of feeling on edge. She never knows sort of what the status of the relationship is or what's happening. Um, you know, they make her feel like really great one moment and really horrible another moment. And that's exactly what happened with her father growing up. He would be really present and really there. And then he would kind of, you know, be absent and disappear and forget things like birthdays. And so she was really replicating this. We call this repetition compulsion. That's, you know, that's a, a term in psychology, which, you know, which right. is that, um, you know, people keep repeating a pattern from childhood because there's this unconscious desire to win this time. I'm going to... Um, you know, and by the way, it's it, when I say unconscious, it's completely outside of their awareness. So when we pick a partner, if we have unfinished business, we have radar for those people who are going to hurt us in exactly the same way that somebody from the past has hurt us. But we don't think that. But our unconscious says, oh, you look familiar. Come closer. Yeah. And our conscious mind is like, oh, that person is nothing like my parents. So it's so funny, there's that, that big disconnect. And then once they get into relationship with that person, they start to say, oh, wow, I've seen this before. I've experienced this before. This really is familiar. And it isn't until they can do that thing of walking around the bars, right? Which is really sort of processing the trauma, working on grief, working on loss, working on you know really understanding 
that they are not that trapped child anymore. And being able to um, move to a different place that they start to attract different people and they start to be attracted to different people. It's so profound that you say that. I see so many people that come here for one reason. I find other things that are so outcome determinative in their lives. And one of the biggest examples is I'll have couples on that are really fighting. Maybe it's even gotten to the point of domestic violence, et cetera. And so often, tragically, I find that a woman in a relationship as a child was molested by a family member, a father, a brother, an uncle, a grandfather, or whatever. Maybe it was from five to seven, and again from 11 to 13. And when I asked them, did you report this? Yes, I told my mother, and she did A, B, C, or D. What did you do to heal those wounds? What did you do to deal with that trauma? And the answer, nine out of 10 times, is nothing. Mm -hmm. They just continued to live with it for the next 20 years, and they come here with those open wounds still affecting who they are, and it's played out in terms of promiscuity, rebellion, anger, et cetera, all the ways that it can play out. But they've never dealt with that trauma, that violation, and that has a profound effect that cuts across virtually every relationship and every area of their functioning in life. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. We see this so much on, I have this podcast called Dear Therapist, and we do a session with somebody. And so often we see people come on and they think that they're, what they experienced as a child is not relevant to what they're experiencing now. You know, why bring that up? I already, it's already taken care of. And they don't, realize that, first of all, they have a lot of feelings about it still because they haven't processed it. And I think the other thing is that when we don't speak those feelings, when we don't work through those feelings, they come out in other ways. We think that we kind of numb ourselves, right? We think like, I'm not going to feel that feeling or I've dealt with it before. And so what they're actually doing is they, they're kind of squashing it down, but it comes out in all the ways you just said in, you know, in, in the case of, um, you know, of sexual abuse, it'll come out in maybe promiscuity, it'll come out in fear of intimacy, it'll come out in picking inappropriate partners, it'll come out in all kinds of ways. In day-to-day -day life, what we see with people um, who didn't deal with feelings is, um, you know, sadness or anxiety or whatever, uh, too much food, too much alcohol, insomnia, um, difficulty in relationships, uh, irritability. That's how your feelings are coming out when you're not talking about them. So numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings that we feel like we can't even talk about them, and then they come out in all of these behaviors instead. And I, I should say too, when we talk about healing and our, you know, a lot of times when we don't talk about our feelings, we have this unconscious desire for our partners to heal us. Like, oh, I found my person and that person's going to heal all of these wounds from childhood because they love me in a way that I wasn't loved uh, as a child. Maybe my parents loved me as a child, but they didn't know how to love. And so all these things happened, but this person knows how to love. No, that person is not going to heal you no matter how emotionally present they are. They will not heal you, only you are going to be able to heal you. And if you go into a relationship thinking the other person is going to heal you, that relationship is going to have a lot of problems. Yeah, it's above their pay grade. They're not equipped to even lead you to discover those answers yourself. And some of the things are not intuitively obvious. I see women sometimes that are morbidly obese, they lose weight, and as they start to get towards their goal, it's kind of the approach avoidance conflict. They start to become attractive to men and they start getting that attention. 
that they don't want. And so they start to put the weight back on to hide. It's kind of like they're zipped up in a parka. And when they take it off, they start getting anxiety because they're getting unwanted attention. And they don't realize that. Another subtle thing I see oftentimes is particularly if it's happening to them when they're like 11, 12, or 13, as much as they don't want that, there are times that they'll say, I actually enjoyed it for a few minutes and have felt guilty my whole life because of that. And so they blame themselves for it. And so they've lived with guilt all that time. And they've never said that to anyone. It's so terrible that they live with those things inside because they don't come out from behind those bars and ask for some help. There are so many ways that children, when they are um, abused, but under the guise of love, get very confused about what healthy love looks like. And uh, until they start talking about it, until they start unpacking that, they they will remain confused about that. And I, I want to say, too, that I think that it's not just women who are confused, um, you know, when when they've had difficult childhoods. I I think that men come in so often and they will say to me, I've never told anyone this before. And they literally mean they have not told a soul, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be sexual, but it could be anything. Um, women will come in and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, my best friend. Right? Yeah. So they've told maybe like one, two, three people. There's such stigma in our culture around men and vulnerability. Right. And I and it and it really hurts relationships and it hurts it hurts individuals, but it also hurts the people who love them and the people that that want to be loved. And I see that when I see couples. So you know, let's say I have a couple come in and the woman often says to the man, you know, I really want you to open up to me. I really want you to be vulnerable with me. I feel like there's this lack of connection here. You know, please open up to me. And then he does. And then maybe he sheds a tear. And then maybe he really starts crying. Inevitably, she will look at me like a deer in headlights, like, oh my gosh, he's crying. What do I do with this, right? So she asked for it. She said, I want to be emotionally close with you. But then we have a lot of trouble in our culture around men being vulnerable. Somehow, all of a sudden, she, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's like, I don't feel safe when you don't open up to me, but I don't feel safe when you're breaking down and crying. Well, what's he supposed to do? <laughs> he can't win, right? Exactly. And so I think we need... I think that we need to make it okay for everybody to be vulnerable, to share their truth, and to create a compassionate, warm, safe space for them in which to do it. That is how we heal. Yeah. I think using these case studies and discussing them, including your own, in maybe you should talk to someone, you didn't choose those obviously at random. I think there are such almost archetypal circumstances in each of those that people can relate to. And I think that's why the book has been and still is such a huge success that I think people are going to find pieces of their life and their story in those stories, which says, you know, this informs me on something that I need to do. I think it's going to ask people if they've ever had to rewrite or if it's now time to rewrite their own self-narrative in order to move forward. And you did that yourself as the process of what you went through in your work. You rewrote your self-narrative, right? I did. And that was really important for me. I wanted to show that I was going through the same process, that I have to ask myself the same questions that my patients ask themselves every day. And if I don't do that, then I'm not going to be effective as a therapist. I, I think that that's why the workbook has been, you know, such a, um, you know, such a popular thing as well, because I think that so many people who read the book said, I saw myself reflected in these people and I learned so much about myself and I started asking myself all these questions, but now I want to know how do I actually go through the step-by-step -step guide of, rewriting my story. And I do that with my patients in therapy, but I wanted to offer that to everybody. And so now people can go through 
ask themselves those questions and go through the process where they have, um, you know, access to to a step-by-step guide that I think sometimes we need. Like you said, we're not taught these things when we're younger. Nobody teaches us how to really examine our stories, examine our feelings, um, you know, make a plan, make goals, and and really reach them. We shoot in Hollywood, as you know, having been here. I ask people a lot, I say, you know, we're in Hollywood where people write scripts. If you were going to write a script for the rest of your life, what would you want it to be? You know what you're living, you know what you're suffering, but if you were just king or queen in the forest and you could write the script for the rest of your life, what would it be? And it is very sad to see that they have a really difficult time envisioning being the star in their own life. Who's going to star in your life if it's not you? And they really have a hard time putting together a vision where they're the star in their own life. Because nobody has ever asked them that. Nobody has ever said, you are the protagonist of your own life. How would you like this story to go? Most people have never thought about their own lives that way. They don't realize how much agency they actually have. And I think that's one of the most empowering things about asking yourself these questions. Um, you know, in my TED talk, I get up on the stage and I say, we're all going to die. You know, that's something that I, that I say to people. And I find that it really motivates people to know that life has a hundred percent mortality rate. It's not for other people. Every single one of us is going to die. What do you want to do with your time here? Yeah. And I think when people are really aware of that, not in a morbid way, but in a way that feels like I need to live with intentionality. When I wake up every day, am I living with intention? Am I living the kind of life that aligns with my values, that aligns with the kind of life I want to have? And if I'm not, what can I do differently? And what's keeping me from doing that? I have this big ruler that's like 30 feet long and a foot wide that I roll out on stage sometimes and it goes from zero to 83 because that's kind of the life expectancy. (laughs) I oftentimes will get somebody up to go stand on their age and say, okay, look over your shoulder, see how much is behind you. And if they're like 65 years old, they look over their shoulder and the 65 years behind them now look ahead and there's like this much ahead of them, like two feet ahead of them and 20 feet behind them. They're like, oh my God, you need to be who you are on purpose. You've got this much time left. How do you want to spend it? And it's astounding to me how that visual representation wakes people up sometimes when they go, Oh my God. I mean, I've been a pilot since I was 16. I say one of the things that pilots have no use for is runway behind them. And <laughs> and you're standing here, you got all this runway behind you and this little bit ahead of you. And you don't know how much of that's going to be quality. You've got 20 years ahead of you, but is all of that going to be useful? Are you going to be healthy and vibrant all that time? It really does wake people up sometimes. You've got to be who you are on purpose. I love that you talk to people about that and challenge them to write this up, figure out how they want to be in a new narrative and do what they want to do. And it's not about abandoning their lives. You don't have to leave everything. You just change the way you are. You're not going to drop your kids off at the mall and say, I want a new life and just leave them there. But you can do it differently within the confines of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a woman that I write about in the book who is about to turn 70 and feels like that, you know, kind of the runway is behind her and she doesn't know what she can change at this point. And she goes through extraordinary change. So I think it's never too late to change. And I, um, you know, I, I feel like it's being really aware of how we're living our lives is important at any age. It's not just, you know, oh, let's look at the runway behind us. I think, at, you know, we should be teaching that to our kids. 
live with intention, be clear about what you want, who you are, what is authentic to you, the kinds of relationships you want to have with others, the kind of relationship you want to have to yourself. That's important for all of us. And that's what I think you and I are both trying to do in our work. Yeah. And I've hit 70. I guess that's really old when I was 30. (laughs) It was even old when I was 50. And now it's like, it's just a number now because I'm starting some whole new things in my life. It's never too late. However much time you have, you want to make the most of it. I love the way you approach this. And I love the fact that you don't give people the answer. You lead them to discovery. You lead them to finding it by asking themselves the questions. Because let's face it, you and I might figure this out in the first hour We can tell them it doesn't stick, but if they discover it, they'll never forget it. But they've got to discover it. Well, absolutely. I I also feel like people have the answers. They just don't necessarily have access to them. And our job is to help them access the answers that they already have. Yeah. Now, uh, let me ask you one last kind of general question, because I've kept you a long time. I know, but like I said, this is kind of my guilty pleasure getting to talk shop with somebody that I really respect. Coming out of this pandemic, and please God that we're coming out of it, and people are coming out of this quarantine, we're seeing spikes in depression, anxiety, loneliness with our kids. We're seeing adults that are intimidated by what they used to take for granted in terms of social interaction and the competition of career. I think people thought when the quarantine was lifted, it was going to be like that scene from Greece when it was the last day of school and those doors flew open and they all ran out into the carnival and everybody was dancing and singing like, oh, it's over, we're free. And it hasn't been that way at all. A lot of people are feeling trepidation and resisting a little bit, having fear getting back into things that once was like falling off a log. What do you think people need to say to themselves as they transition back into a fully functioning world? Well, I think that people have to realize that we've all been through a big change and everybody has reacted differently and everybody's had different circumstances. And I think we need to allow for that. I think that, you know, we've talked about this collective trauma, but it's been different for different people. And so, and and people are going to have different feelings about what it means to transition to something that feels more normal, but isn't quite normal because the pandemic, you know, the, the COVID is still here. So I I think it's really important just to allow for people to have their experiences, not judge people for what they're experiencing, not fight with them about, you know, they need to feel a certain way because you feel a certain way. And just I think if the if the pandemic taught us anything, it's about we need to have more compassion for one another. I'm glad to hear you say that. I want people to be patient with themselves because if they as they go out there and those first days or weeks are a little tough, be patient. You'll get back to your stride. We'll find our way back. You haven't regressed to the point of no return. Just be patient with yourself. You'll get your legs back under you. We haven't passed the point of no return. I'm the incurable optimist, and I think that we will come back strong and we'll find our way back. So I agree. You say compassion, and I add patience, and I think if we had those two things, we'll get back where we need to be quickly and recognize that we're being role models for our children. Sometimes they may roll their eyes and not seem to listen, but they are always watching. So if we're careful about what we model for them, we'll be doing them a big favor. Yeah, I always say, too, that, you know, when I'm on stage and I'll I'll say to people, who is the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? You know, I'll say show of hands, you know, is it your partner? Is it your child? Is it your best friend? Is it your sister? Whatever. I get lots of hands for those. But the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. 
And so as we come out of this, I think we need to be especially aware of being kind to ourselves. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it useful? And if it's not, change the radio station, find another way of talking to yourself. Because I think that the ways that we talk to ourselves and the, the, the voice in our head that is playing all the time has a huge impact on the quality of our lives in the day to day. Boy, does it ever. I couldn't say it better. Well, I'm going to leave it at that, Lori. And I do want to say again, I know I keep repeating it, but the book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. You can find it anywhere books are sold. And by the way, Lori just came on to talk about this. She did not ask that I even mention the book at all. This is me talking about the book so much. She did not even ask that I mention the book. She also has a podcast. It's called Dear Therapist. I'm going to put it on drphil.com. I'm going to put it on my Facebook everywhere. It's lauriegottlieb.com slash podcast. You'll find it. It's really interesting, and you can listen in and find things that help you because it's really informative, and they're sharing real sessions that I really think everybody can benefit from hearing how people just like you get through their struggles and grow and change. It's the same concept that Dr. Phil is based on from a different point of view. And Lori, just congratulations on all your success. Hope to see you soon and we'll keep doing what we're doing. Oh, well, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Well, same here. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. 